Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. And if you don't get that reference, look it up. It's a thing. This is It's All Relative, where we look at crime and how it affects the family. This is episode three of a series about the deaths of Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen McDonald, and the subsequent prosecution of Jeffrey McDonald. Seriously, if you haven't heard the first two, go listen to those. This series is going to go for an unknown bit of time, so it's best to get all the info. This third episode will still be here for you when you're done with the other two. Quick disclaimer, if you somehow think that there will not be frank discussion of murder, abuse, battery, and so forth, you are very mistaken. If that makes you uncomfortable, don't listen. You have been warned. To kick things off, here is a little Al Hurt. So, if you remember back to the last episode, when Jeff and Colette get married, it's not exactly a shotgun wedding, but it has some similarities. Colette is pregnant, and they're married in two weeks from the day they told their parents. Colette quits uni to stay with Jeff at Stanford. Jeff is admitted to medical school, and he quits his program at Stanford at the end of his junior year to start at Northwestern. Jeffrey McDonald has an image he wants to portray. Reminder, his father was a strict disciplinarian. Also, this is the height of the Vietnam conflict. Young men are being drafted daily, and supposedly the medical students are being told new doctors should be ready to serve upon graduation. Jeff decides he wants to go to Vietnam, and he doesn't want to leave it to the chance of the draft. So, towards the end of his medical internship, he enlists in the Army. Jeff does admit that Colette is not thrilled with his joining up. He didn't ask or discuss, he just did. And she is particularly not thrilled about his maybe having to go to Vietnam. And here's where I get a bit incredulous. Supposedly, there was about two weeks between when his internship ended and when he had to report to BMT. So they take a trip to Aruba. Yes, folks, my snark is back. Here's why. Throughout Jeff's time with Colette, there is a distinct tone of money being very, very tight. Yet somehow, he comes up with the money to go to Aruba for two weeks. Please. Yet another thing that is sus as hell. There are more of these sus moments during this tale of woe. Nevertheless, according to McDonald, this trip helps to ease Colette's fears. But, just as he had purportedly calmed Colette's fears, he goes and signs up to be a Green Beret. Again, he doesn't ask or even inform Colette ahead of time, he just does it. And I feel the need to remind you that I am working with the preponderance of crazy shit, not any one particular instance of crazy shit. Because I know that in the 1960s, the concept of a man just making a decision and expecting his wife to just fall in line is not that unusual. <sighs> Jeff, though, says his basic training is more like a holiday than a strenuous course on becoming an army of one. I know officer training is different than BMT, but I have a hard time believing he could just decide to work out just him and a co-candidate, as opposed to a rigorous schedule imposed by the army. He stays in hotel rooms and goes to nudie bars. Is this another bit of sus? The army puts on what Jeff calls a career day to attract various candidates to specific areas of the army. Jeff thinks they're all turkeys, and yes, that is the word he used. Except for one colonel who is not only spit and polished together, he basically dares the candidates to prove their manhood and join the Green Berets. Jeff is sold. 
he calls Colette and tells her. And at this point, he says he finally understands how she might be worried about his jumping out of airplanes and going to Vietnam. Quote, I explained to her how, instead of wasting two years in a sick call line treating not very sick people, this way I had a chance to work with these incredible troops. And if I went to Vietnam, I might even go as a Green Beret physician. Colette was uncomfortable about me becoming a Green Beret, but she also respected me, you know, for making a firm decision. And she sort of, you know, she put her faith and her trust in me. Also, to be honest, this colonel had told us that if we passed the physical test and signed the right papers and we were willing to go to airborne school, we could have our orders changed from Vietnam to Fort Benning, Georgia, and we would get orders from Fort Benning, probably to JFK Center at Fort Bragg, for Green Beret status. And this was the thing she sort of latched onto. And I then sort of used as a trump card, I guess. That was being taken off my orders for Vietnam. And I then sort of realized how that was the first time I had ever really understood that Colette was upset that I might be going to Vietnam. I had always been kind of casual about it and a little cavalier, but at that point, that phone call brought me to a realization that Colette, and therefore probably my mom and dad were, I'm sorry, not my dad, but my mom, were upset about me going to Vietnam. Therefore, that became the topic of conversation. That joining the Green Berets was getting me off orders to Vietnam, but that was not at all my intention in joining. As a matter of fact, I fully expected to go to Vietnam as soon as I got to the Green Beret. And later on, as a matter of fact, I talked to two of my commanding officers and asked to go to Vietnam on two different occasions, neither of which were fully discussed with Colette. End quote. Okay, there is a host of shit in that quote. But did you catch where he slipped and mentioned his dad? Not sure what to make of that, if anything, but I find it worth noting. Besides that, this goes to something I've been wondering about since I first read, or listened to, as my case may be, Fatal Vision. Why did Jeffrey McDonald never go to Vietnam? I think he's trying to set up Colette here as the responsible party to keeping him from the war. But it's never actually stated how he got stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, rather than sent to Asia. 1969 was the height of the Vietnam conflict. I would think that a trained thoracic surgeon would be prized by the army and fully needed in Nam. Even if McDonald did ask to be stationed stateside for the sake of Colette, he says he asked several times afterwards to be sent to Vietnam. And yet, McDonald was given a position only a slight step up from data entry, or even janitorial. Quote, his work was mostly clerical. He was responsible for the sanitation of mess hall and latrines and for filling out monthly venereal disease reports. How many WTFs can I insert here? A thoracic surgeon, a trained Green Beret, reduced to making sure the bathrooms were kept clean while noting the soldiers who suffered from STDs. Something sounds very wrong here. But let's continue. At some point in their relationship, Jeff and Colette began to dream of owning what they call a farm and sounds more like a hobby farm. This is important because... The Christmas prior to the murders, so about two months prior, Jeff got a surprise for the family. A pony. I know, practical, right? And there is every indication that their finances aren't that much better than they had been when the suspicious trip to Aruba took place. So, where the fuck did the money come from for the horse and the stable fees? McDonald says that he and Colette were closer than ever once they moved to Fort Bragg. I'm not sure how they could possibly be with his working two jobs, Jeff is definitely moonlighting at a non-military hospital to make ends meet, 
He is going on trainings with the Green Berets, which would last for days. They have two little girls, and anyone who has dealt with preschool-age children know exactly how little time kids allow their caregivers to do anything other than focus on the preschool-age children. And Colette is taking a college course, trying to finish her degree. And if all that isn't enough, Jeff is angling to take a trip with the Army boxing team to Russia, a trip which was going to last about a month. According to Jeff, quote, Colette is almost as happy as I am about the possibility of my going, although we both wish she could go, end quote. Right. Two more things that need to be tossed in to the perfect storm salad that becomes a nightmare on February 17, 1970. One. When Jeff is not with Colette, he is trolling for and usually getting female company. Jeff says, that is, if I can get through it without gagging, quote, I think emotionally, without any question, our relationship was getting stronger. I think the trust was building. Some of the more obvious past escapades were beginning to fade. The little things that I did, little affairs and the motel trips and stuff like that, that was nothing. It just meant absolutely nothing except it a guy away from home, and it didn't make any difference one way or the other. Colette had never been happier. I think the kids were growing by leaps and bounds, and we were extremely happy and essentially oblivious to any problems at all between us. End quote. <sighs> Words failed me. Item number two concerns the use of drugs. McDonald was very anti-hippie and anti-drug. In particular, he seemed to take a perverse joy in pointing out his brother, Jay's, weakness when it came to drugs. Oddly enough, Jeff does admit to taking diet pills to lose weight while in college. At the time of the murders, he was on an Escatrol trial program through the Army. Diet pills were normally some form of amphetamine at this time in history. Escatrol is definitely dextroamphetamine. The dangerous effects of amphetamines were not yet fully recognized. They weren't even looked at for on the standard talk screen. After the murders, McDonald claimed he wasn't sure if he had even taken five doses of the Escatrol throughout the four-week period he'd been on the drug. But, considering this was a scientific trial, he would most likely have been given a dosage schedule which he would be required to track and follow religiously. And look, he says he lost 12 to 15 pounds in that four weeks. Since he lost so much weight so fast, I'm guessing he took a lot more than he was claiming. About 10 years after the McDonald murders, Escatrol was pulled from the market for some very dangerous side effects. So we now have the responsibility and expense of a pony on a woman with two little girls and a third child on the way. Jeff is working all the hours God gave him. He's not sleeping much at all, another possible indicator of regular Escatrol use. And Colette has started a course at the college in the hopes of eventually finishing off her bachelor's. Thus begins the night of February 16, 1970. According to Jeff, he had worked a 24-hour shift at his moonlighting job and put a full day in his army job. He then played basketball for an indeterminate amount of time, and then he went and got Kimberly and Kristen and took them down to feed the pony. They had dinner back at home, and then Colette left to pick up a classmate for the psychology class they were both taking. And I'm going to digress here a little bit, because it's pertinent to illustrate the relationship. Remember Jeff said they were recommitting themselves to each other? They were closer than ever? When McDonald was questioned by investigators shortly after the murders, this is how it went. Quote, 
What kind of class was Colette in? Shao asked. What the heck was the latest one? I don't know. Something literature? I mean, I really don't know. She had just gotten in A in her 7th century English? I don't know. It was, it was, it, she was an English major and it was some kind of literature course. Was she after her degree? Yeah, in English. She was going to end up when I got to Yale. She's going to, she was going to try to, you know, get into Yale or college nearby. And she was going to try to get a, you know, bachelor's in English. To what end? I don't know. I suppose she would, would have liked to have ended up being some kind of an instructor. Preferably in a college atmosphere, you know, wherever I was. I was probably going to stay at a university to practice and she would just piddle. You know, be an instructor, kind of a part-time thing, end quote. Oh, I don't know, English summit or the other. Yeah, she was going to piddle. Jesus Christ. Back to the night of the murders. So Colette is off to her psychology course with a classmate, and Jeff say, says he cleared off the table and got the kids in their pajamas. Shortly, Christy, the two-year-old, is put to bed. But Kimberly, age five, stays up with her father to wait for laughing. And folks... I cannot count how many people who have discussed this case and have no idea what laughing is. Give it a goog, people. It's not hard. We have the technology. Moving on. Jeff says he was probably on the floor with Kimberly and he has a short nap, but wakes up in time to watch laughing. Kimmy goes to bed about nine and Colette comes home about a quarter to ten. At some point, he adds that Colette made him a liqueur to drink, but this is not part of the first recitations. Johnny Carson comes on and Colette goes to bed. McDonald says he started a mystery novel when Kimberly went to bed. Kristen wakes up and he brings her a bottle of chocolate milk. I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm not going to say anything about that. He finished reading, did the dishes with surgeon's gloves he kept on hand at home, and decided to go to bed. But when he gets to bed, he finds that Kristen had, at some point, gotten into bed with his wife and wet the sheets. He picks up the sleeping girl and puts her back in her own bed and decides to let Colette sleep rather than waking her to change the sheets. He grabs a pillow and spare blanket and goes back to the living room to sleep. Okay, this thing about Christy wetting the bed needs to be addressed because so many commentators have made such an issue out of the damn peed on sheets. Many have asserted that he should have cleaned up the child and the sheets, that at least he's being a bad parent. Jesus. Okay, look. If you discover that the bed is peed on in the middle of the night and you have been caring for a small child or children every day, you are tired, like fucking exhausted. So is your mate. And you are going to wake them up and make them get out of bed and wait for you to change all the sheets? Fuck that. My ex slept like a corpse in a crypt. There was no way I could wake his ass up to make that kind of a production out of bed cleaning. My options were to cover up the wet spot and sleep on that or sleep somewhere else. If you also make the child change clothing, you are going to end up with a wide awake but extremely cranky child to deal with for the next so many hours, all of which you will have to deal with when, while you yourself are exhausted. Nope. In this instance, Jeffrey McDonald is fine. So Jeff falls asleep on the sofa and is awakened by Colette and Kimberly yelling and four people attacking him. This next bit of WTF-ness here concerns the attackers. 
I have to preface this discussion with an acknowledgement that I am a bit uncomfortable with myself for taking the side I do in this case. Eyewitness testimony is often flawed because of the way memory and the brain function, particularly in traumatic situations. People rarely act the way culture says they should, especially in traumatic situations and in the aftermath of those situations. Additionally, actions and motivations are often not a given. In other words, you cannot judge a person's motivations based on their actions. This is one of the main reasons miscommunications happen. Based on my strong belief in the previously listed things, the arguments and conclusions I make about Jeffrey McDonald weigh on my mind. But there is a very good reason for my seeming about face on my principles. I really hate myself for sounding like Leah Askey in the Faria case, but Jeff's stories are too similar. Once he's settled on the details, every time he tells the story of that night, it's like he is an actor on a stage reciting his lines. Lines in which he is giving an excited and harrowing tale of the night he was attacked. So, the first, albeit smaller, problem is that Jeff originally says the attackers are all white, but settles on one of the attackers is black. The chanting blonde woman in the floppy hat has black boots at first, but this also soon changes to be white. And for some reason, McDonald is able to give a most detailed description of the blonde in the go-go boots and floppy hat, Remember when he gave an account of his first meeting of Colette and how focused he was on her appearance? Apparently, his attention to detail of all blonde women is just as impeccable, even in a life-or-death struggle. You can make the case that MacDonald is hyper-aware of his surroundings, particularly when it comes to people he is attracted to. This could be a perfectly innocent outcome of the workings of his mind. For most people, though, the recall on this kind of circumstance is not so pristine. And here is the major WTF issue I have with this scenario. The manhunt is for people, three men and a woman. However, if there were four people in the room beating on Jeff, then who was in the room, or rooms, attacking Colette and Kristen? Because he is awoken to Colette screaming, Jeff, Jeff, why are they doing this to me? As well as the four in the room with him. That would presuppose that there is someone, and most likely more than one someone, since Colette says they, down the hall, attacking her and Kristen. I realize that they only had McDonald's description of four people to look for, but the case pretty much settles on those four people as the culprits, and nothing is ever spoken of any more than that. Okay, next. Jeff says that he gets stabbed, but doesn't realize he's been stabbed until later. He somehow gets away from the attackers and passes out for some indeterminate amount of time. Quote, the next thing I remember, though, was lying on the hallway, at the end of the hallway floor, and I was freezing cold, and it was very quiet, and my teeth were chattering, and I went down and to the bedroom. McDonald's voice suddenly weakened, and his cadence slowed. And, uh, I had, a, uh, I was dizzy, you know, I, I wasn't really, uh, wasn't really real alert, and I, uh, my wife, my wife was lying on, on the floor next to the bed, and there, there was a knife in her upper chest. He was sobbing his words now rather than speaking them and trying repeatedly to clear his throat. So I took that out and tried to give her artificial respiration, but the air was coming out of her chest. So um, I went and checked the kids and uh, there was a long pause as McDonald wept, end quote. He took the knife out. <sighs> Very few people, including the attorneys in the trial, make an issue of this. In the episodes of the prosecutor's podcast that deal with McDonald, they question it but posit that he may have done it because he's a surgeon. Eee, wrong. 
Jesus, this is such a bad thing to do. You never take the knife out, not until you are in an OR with a competent surgical staff surrounding you. This is the quickest way to kill the wounded. As if to prove the point, bloody air bubbles come out of Colette's neck and chest. Only one podcaster gets a gold star for not only commenting on this, but being as appalled as I am about what Dr. McDonald did when he discovered his wife. However, as if the gods are against me, I seem to have lost the podcast, so I cannot give her her full due glory. The podcaster is a former ER nurse, and if this sounds familiar to anyone, hit me up because she deserves her kudos. Now, we have an account of McDonald going here, going there, doing this, doing that in the house. Basically, he's acting scatterbrained, and honestly, this could be shock. One important point here is that, given the order he did things in, he should have tracked blood from room to room, left blood on the telephones, some accounts have him using two different ones, and left blood in the bathroom where he said he washed up. None of this existed. McDonald also seems really interested in drawing attention to the operator at the end of the emergency call. In one telling, he says the woman wouldn't even listen to his emergency until he gave her his social security number. In another, after telling her that some people have been stabbed, she insisted that he had to call the MPs himself and that since he was on base, it was none of her concern. So this begins some of the worst emergency and forensic procedure, but is sadly par for the course in cases even today in 2023. Regardless of the competence or incompetence of the emergency call staff, when the MPs arrived, they have somehow been given the impression that they were investigating a domestic disturbance. While 10 minutes is not a long time, Fort Bragg is not so big as to need that much time to get from one end to the other. 544 Castle Drive was quiet and dark. The front door is locked and the lieutenant in charge refuses to allow anyone to kick in the door because, quote, it is, after all, an officer's residence, end quote. They are about to go see about getting a warrant to break in because it's not like anyone is bleeding to death or anything when someone checks the back door. Pause for me to hold my head here. It is at this point that they find the crime scene and call for medical. I know this is cynical, but when investigators find the scene, Kimberly and Kristen are lying on their sides, tucked up in their beds as if asleep. Colette lay on the floor, covered by a pajama top and a bath mat, and, quote, Captain Jeffrey R. McDonald lay next to her motionless. He wore only blue pajama bottoms. He was face down with his head on her chest and one arm wrapped around her neck. Just like with a girlfriend, an MP sergeant described it later, as if he was crying on her shoulder, end quote. I mean, how picturesque is that? Ask anyone who deals with the psychosocial aspects of serious crime, and there is usually only one type of person who leaves their victims posed in this way. It does not look good for Captain Jeff. But as I said, the initial entry of investigators into this crime was a bit fucked, to put it nicely. That night had been rainy and boring. As soon as the MPs realized this crime was a big deal, a game of military telephone started and as many on duty as heard about the crime showed up on the lawn. Many showed up inside the home, sitting on the sofa, riding potted plants, and hanging up telephones. I wish I were kidding about this, but I'm not. McDonald's wallet was even stolen from a desk drawer while the scene was supposedly preserved. They did not take elimination prints from the girls. Quote, each day's testimony, even during the prosecution's portion of the case, seemed to produce less evidence linking McDonald to the crimes than it did to new examples of CID bungling. 
the discarded pajama bottoms, the emptied garbage, the flushed toilets, the destroyed footprint, which superficially at least had appeared to match a test print taken off the left foot of Jeffrey McDonald. The string of errors would have been highly comical had their consequences not been so serious. End quote. In CID's defense, Ivory, Shaw, and Grebner did seem to do their jobs impeccably well, including getting down on hands and knees to comb the carpet for trace. The problem was that the first responders had already compromised the scene. Errors or no, CID felt that there was enough to bring the case before an Article 32 hearing. An Article 32 hearing is similar to a grand jury hearing, in which the case is presented to determine if there is enough to proceed to trial. In a grand jury hearing, the jury decides if there's enough to bring the case to trial. In an Article 32, an investigating officer decides if there's enough to proceed to a court-martial. McDonald is placed under house arrest, sort of. When the Army decided there would be an Article 32, McDonald was assigned guards and restricted to his quarters. Army CID reported that McDonald sweet-talked his guards into allowing female visitors into his room while he was on lockdown. This allegation is backed up by the MPs and at least one civilian woman who worked on the base and had been allowed inside McDonald's room. McDonald denies the booty calls, although he admits to taking that woman on a double date once the Article 32 was concluded. In terms of veracity, it's hard to decide. People lie for all sorts of reasons. The woman could be lying to get back at McDonald for some unknown past sin, or she could just like to brag and is embellishing to make the tale sound better. It's hard to understand why the MPs would say something like this, as they would probably get into a heap of trouble. It is totally in keeping with Jeff's M.O., and he had no trouble admitting to the non-affairs he had when Colette was alive. I'm not sure what his motive would be for denying the hookup in this circumstance. It is, however, a really dick move for a man accused of murdering his whole family to do. He hires a fairly big-shot attorney from Philadelphia, Bernard Siegel. Siegel normally took cases that were against the underdog, and particularly against the counterculture. In other words, he was for counterculture and against the norm. So Siegel backing McDonald was a bit of a surprise. In the next episode, we will dive into the hearing and see what holes everyone digs for themselves. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe, rate, and even review. Tell a friend. Constructive comments are welcome. You can find me at Despecta on most of the things. I leave you with Billy Barnes and the intro to Laughing.